0: Welcome back, everyone, to Holy CV with me, Jamie Franklin and Clinton Collister. Clinton, good to see you. Were you were you happy with our
1: podcast with the bishop last week? That was quite, well, two weeks ago. That was quite exciting, wasn't it? I, I thought it was very exciting. Our, our second bishop uh, after after Bishop Philip North. And I, I think it bodes well. I'm glad to to have him as my bishop at Pusey House. Oh, yeah. Is it your, your bishop at Pusey House? Is that right? Exactly. Yeah, that's oh. right. Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Well, uh, there was it was a good episode. You should check it out, Bishop Paul Thomas. If you didn't hear it, it's uh, on our you know all the audio feeds and the podcasts and so on. But today we will have no further of this ado because we have an equally exciting guest, uh, Father James Lawson, who's joining us today to talk about his fantastic book, Loving and Hating the World. Uh, Father James is uh, the Vicar of St Mary Magdalene in Enfield and the Area Director of Ordinance the Bishop of Edmonton. So uh, Father James, you're also um, I you know, if I may say so, a very deep thinker, a theologian, an intellectual, a person of substance. And we need to be grateful for people like you in the Church of England. So thank you for joining us today.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm glad to be with you.
0: Oh, well, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's great to have you here. Um, we're gonna talk about your book, Loving and Hate, on Loving and Hate in the World, I should say. I shouldn't miss out the on. That's very important.
1: Um no, on, on, that was a typo on my part well, oh, is, is that
0: right <laughs> oh it's well it's a, it, it's it's mentioned it's mentioned at least twice in these notes so um so you've <laughs> made the same typo twice um which is very rare from a you know from an epistemological point of view i just assumed that that was correct anyway doesn't matter uh well it does matter sorry we need to get this book title right loving and hating the world by james lawson um reasonably priced
2: yes it is i think it's on kindle only seven pounds
0: oh well that's very good isn't yeah. it As we that's a, a yeah that's a steal we were just having a chat beforehand about how unreasonably priced my book is and that's why no one's bought it um but your book is reasonably priced and excellent so i hope people will go away and 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 go and get it um well, Father James, let's talk a little bit about you and about your background before we delve into yeah. can you tell us something about your sort of formation? Um, you know, you you're a you're an area director of ordinance now, so so you deal with these kind of stories all the time, but, but how did you first discern a call to serve the Lord as a priest and a, a theologian?
2: Yeah, so thank you. Um I mean this is this is a question I ask all the time with potential ordinance. And you know, they give they, their story, and I always tell them like Barack Obama, your story is the way. The way to power, but mm. um, it is mysterious. It's more mysterious than 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 you know the glib stories that people present. And it, I think, it's a perception of the glory of the Lord. Mm. And some people see it, and some people don't. And if you see it, it makes sense to respond to give your life, you know, to be a priest. Mm. Um, I mean, there are there are sort of way markers. Reading Augustine was very important. Reading Augustine's Confessions for the first time. Um, and I later did a doctorate on Augustine. Right. And also being taught by Rome Williams mm. in Oxford. And, and just the, the experience of the living tradition of Anglo Catholicism. Um, and Pusey House and Murfield, you know, the idea that tractarian ideals become monastic realities or used to Murfield. So being part of a living tradition, being sustained by that, mm-hmm. being inspired. Mm.
0: And is it was um was was Augustine the well, I mean, I assume he was, seeing as you, you did a PhD on him, but was was he the sort of um, you know, the foundation stone for you? And and do you have other theologians who were particularly uh, inspirational to you in in your in your formation as yeah. a thinker and a theologian?
2: Augustine was very important.
0: Mm-hmm. What I
2: worked on was the tenth book of the city of God, which right. is about how you enter the city of God. And when you see that, you know, when you understand that, what do you do with it? Just mm. put it away and go away and live your life. But, um, and there were great theologians. I was in Oxford in the 90s and there were great theologians. There was Oliver O'Donovan as well as Rowan Williams. Mm. And this somewhat unknown Anglican tradition of the, the Fathers and the Caroline Divines and the Oxford movement. And then radical Orthodoxy and Ressourcemon theologians mm. and modern Orthodox theology as well. This great richness mm. I experienced there. Mm. theology Mm. both living teachers and and through books Mm.
0: yeah yeah and it's something that i think is one of those things which doesn't really come across in this sort of the public face of the church of england so much of the time does it that we do have this rich intellectual heritage which is not entirely something of the past even there are there are still Mm. great anglican theologians who are alive and and who are still writing today and, yeah. and and those um
1: we have had some of them on this podcast. Yeah, we, <laughs> we have. We have,
0: yeah, we have. Um yeah. G- uh, Jerry McDermott was one of my my favorite Anglican uh thinkers. Uh, that was that was that was brilliant. I loved I loved hearing I love hearing him, and we've had others as well, of course. So um and that's something of course we're very passionate about is the fact that we want to um not just retrieve these these thinkers but but to promote them and to get people yeah. reading them and to 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 promote Um, intellectual confidence within the church of england in our own tradition and the things that we've contributed um whereas as i say the kind of public facing aspect of the church is often so well so bereft of any sense of confidence and any any sense that we have anything to contribute
2: yeah and it's unknown talking to ordinands they don't know the tradition Mm -hmm. but they sometimes do listen to your podcast well so that's good
0: well that's great i'm pleased i'm very pleased if that's the case. Yeah, and those are very much. I mean, they're very much the um, uh, theologians that um, have influenced me, and and I'm sure you as well, Clinton. Um, I wrote about the. I mean, I think you know I wrote about the radical orthodoxy people in my um, my doctorate and my um, my uh, not very um, reasonably priced book. Um, and, and, but what it does is it gives you access to the. It gives you access to the tradition because you can't understand the tradition and you can't understand. Sorry, what you're reading you know, the radical orthodoxy theologians, John everything. you can't really understand
1: that unless you understand something about everything else. well, well, well. How how can you understand postmodern critical Augustinianism if you don't read the city of God, right?
0: Yeah, of course. Yeah, of course. So that's great. And, and, uh, and, and clearly this sort of formation that um, was in, in um, a real sense of preparation for this, this work that you've written, um, yes. so we're talking, we're talking about today, loving and hating the world. Do you want to tell us um, what led you to write that book and and what you, what the concerns are with it?
2: Well, I hope it's um, grounded in experience as well as reading mm. Mm. the experience of the church, experience of religious life, experience of getting to know a monastery where I've just come back from on, on retreats. I've been there 13, 13 years in a row and lent. So, and I've got to know the community quite well, a community wow. of Trappists, so the religious life. Um, but I suppose the book came out of partly out of a sense of unease, which I think you feel too, with a certain kind of maybe liberal Catholicism, or certain kind of Anglicism. I was I was chaplain um, for a while to the Bishop of Salisbury mm. um, at the you know the belly of the beast for affirming Catholicism. <laughs> and it was something I felt was wrong here. Something wasn't right. What was it? So the book is about that, mm. and also the. The emphasis on discipleship so marketing isn't going to do it just um accommodation um isn't going to do it updating things a genre mentor isn't going to do it so discipleship was a theme in evangelism in the church of england well, what does discipleship mean how do you get discipleship right how do you be authentic um and also how can you bring people together so if we go into this if we do an exercise maybe in resource somewhat lot about discipleship could we bring people together this polarization in Anglicanism and in Catholic Anglicanism, could is there any way of addressing that um, and taking people on a kind of spiritual itinerary in the book? Because that's what Augustine does in the City of God. He, it's almost um, a spiritual exercise is implicit in the in the in the text, and I want to try and offer something like that in the book. Mm. Yeah, mm. for authenticity and for unity.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. That's great motivation.
1: So, did it, um, did it come out? Um, one question related to that: Did it come out of your work teaching, teaching uh, ordinands at St. Stephen's House in your, in your work in pastoral theology. Yeah. I, kind I, of thinking about, oh, how, how should we form these young men to be priests? You know, yes, what is formation. it that they should be doing and thinking?
2: Yeah, I think, I haven't written much, but I, what I've written is about often about formation. I think it's so important because the world forms us. You know, as Flannery O'Connor Connor says, the world pushes and we have to push back. And how do we do that? So thinking about formation in, in theological education, mm. um, And I've just written something in for Genealogy of Modernity on, it's called The Peasant of the Goron and the Pharaoh Within, about how the world forms us and we become kind of entrepreneurs of our own selves. So in the old days, well, to some extent still, people go on strike, but more often, you know, they commit suicide or go off sick, burn out with depression, because they've internalised the Pharaoh who's demanding Mm. capitalist demand for productivity. Yes, we can. Um so I've written about formation, but I'd written the manuscript of this text before before I started teaching in Oxford at mm. house where I was. Um, but developing it after that. Mm.
0: And just so one more question before we hear about the meat of this book. because I'm sure people are fascinated to hear a bit more of that. I mean, it seems to me like the the big the big sort of criticism I think I, I'd make of those Anglicans who you mentioned as sort of living Anglicans. I mean yeah, from from my perspective, I, I suppose that the 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 conclusion I've come to, I don't know if it's a conclusion, but at least this is a, critica- a criticism I make: is that these, you know, the radical orthodoxy people, um, Rome Williams, um, pro- I don't know, I don't know as much about Oliver o- O'Donovan, but but my concern would be that they that they, if you think about loving and hating the world, there's a lot of, let's say loving the world but there's not very there's not as much hating the world and and i think that's that's the thing i find questionable um there doesn't seem to be that sort of hard edge i always thought with radical orthodoxy there was but then when i actually actually got a bit deeper into it i thought well actually all the kind of sacred cows of this culture were actually affirmed by radical orthodoxy so i started sort of question how radical it actually was there was a lot of talk of retrieving the tradition and everything like that, but there wasn't so much talk of allowing the tradition to interrogate the present, and particularly the sacred cows of the present. So I don't know what you think about that, but yeah. be interesting.
2: Um, well, John Milbank certainly. I remember if he was invited to speak at the Modern Doctrine Seminar in Oxford, people wouldn't turn up; mm. they were cancelled. So he he's um, he's antagonising people, mm. antagonising liberals, perhaps. Um, but certainly, yeah, the book.
1: And, and what would yeah. be the the reasoning behind that? Would it be the sort of um, claim that the theology is the queen of the sciences, and you need to be more critical uh, to, toward secular social theories, or, or um, what is it about his theology that yeah. would have rubbed certain people the wrong way?
2: The wonderful lecture by Cyril O'Regan about radical orthodoxy and John Milbank, in particular, um, that sees him as inheriting the mantle of Newman right. and mm-hmm. Newman's apocalypticism, so that. Um, Newman inherits a, a sense of the Pope as Antichrist from his Protestant heritage, his formation. But then he changes the identity of Antichrist. So liberalism, modernity becomes Antichrist. Um, and there's that strong sense, I think, in Milbank as well. That's what Sula Regan says. But how it translates, I'm not sure, but he certainly antagonizes people. Mm. And you're right, I did try and write the book, um, I suppose, to sort of bring balance to the force. Mm. So that there's there's a kind of balance between loving and hating the world and there's an imbalance maybe um and I'll come back to that maybe that that there's too much loving
1: and and both Williams hating. and Milbank endorsed the book um so so yeah. given that you were trying to offer a sort of corrective uh that th- this kind of uh contemptus mundi tr- tradition had, had been lost and you're trying to retrieve it perhaps w- what did they make of that did they give you any notes about that side of the argument
2: um I think John Milbank liked the the kind of um, critique of modernity and um, the kind of um, questioning of a complacent assimilation. Um, and Rowan Williams, I certainly depended on in the work, as you can see in certain places, Gnosticism, Augustine, is reading of Hannah Arendt and, and Thomas Merton and the relationship between them. So I'm developing some of his ideas. Um, I think, yeah, that there is, I'm not sure. I think they they both be um, unwilling to endorse modernity, um, and so I think they would be that in common, and so I think they'd, they'd accept the need for a balance between loving and hating the world, and the modern world that we're in.
1: Mm,
0: yeah,
2: I, mean, I don't see big, you know, clear blue water between us.
1: Mm, mm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Listen, Clinton, we should we should move on and actually hear the ideas from this book now. So I'll I'll, I'll hand over to you.
1: Okay. So so Father James, yeah. as as I was reading this book, there there were a number of things I wanted to cover. But for, first and foremost, can you kind of just lay out the the, the basic the basic thesis? Um, what what do you mean when you say that Christians need to cultivate communities of, of ambivalence you know toward the world they, that are that our orientation toward the world needs to be ambivalent in a certain sense where, where are you drawing this from and why is this something that the church needs to hear right now
2: well i think i'm drawing it from the new testament that's what i hope um i think there's an assumed narrative that i want to question the christians in the past were bad and we're good because in the past they're too negative about the world they're Platonists or you know, in some pejorative sense, or even Gnostics. And so we need to be affirming, affirming Catholics, affirming the world, affirming modernity. Um, But my idea is that authentic Christianity is always loving and hating the world at the same time. Um, And there's a non-negotiable tension there. And so it's not just we've moved on, we've progressed beyond a negative attitude to the world that we've left behind, because that wasn't authentically Christian what's authentically Christian is this non-negotiable tension you know being in the world but not of it um, and so we've got to avoid what Jack Mariton describes as an excessive kind of pendulum swing from what he calls a mask manichaeism to what he calls chronolatry which is kneeling before the world you know mm. this this um, desire to be relevant to be up to date um, tension balance is what authentic discipleship's about and we have to work out what that means so that's I think the gist of it—that would be the meat of it—and
1: mm. and, and can you kind of walk walk us through your your framework? So, like you said, the the book begins with with scripture and and leads us into the fathers and and, yeah. and the scholastics and up into these critics of modernity that you were describing. But but um can can you talk to us a little bit about how this this genealogical and historical approach? In, informs your argument and and what you're hoping to accomplish as you give us this full full picture of uh the, the sort of consensus Orthodox Christian view of how we should relate to the world
2: so I begin with scripture the ideas of loving and hating the world in scripture God so love the world you know John 3 16 but love not the world says 1 John 2 15 to 16 so be in the world but not of it and you know, seek the, you know, the good of the city in Babylon, but also come out of Babylon. So there's that tension there in Scripture, and um, this is there in monasticism, um, and it's it's compromised, um, and corrupted, but um, I think it's 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 authentic. This is authentic discipleship, and so I, I present a historical genealogy of ideas from the New Testament to um, the early church Augustine is, is a sort of hero in this story um, and then the kind of what's called the ascetic closure at the end of antiquity and the, the, the theology of contemptus mundi in the middle ages in the 11th and 12th centuries Peter Damien for example saying you know un, unclean world I reject you um, but how that becomes the ideology of the Latin church you know that so um, contempt for the world to rule the world. And the contrast with Buddhism, which has parallel attitudes to the world, but never tried to rule the world in the same way. Um, and then taking this forward, kind of joining the motorway of of, of Charles Taylor's um, the secular age, carrying on the narrative and seeing how I can kind of relate what I've been saying about periods he doesn't cover in detail to his great narrative of the formation of a secular age, how things go wrong, in terms of what he calls the reform master narrative and the ideological deviation theory, so then going into um, is you know is there a crisis you know that um, medieval otherworldliness um, does Gnosticism return with nominalism? It's overcome by Augustine, but does it return? And modernity is the legitimacy of the modern age, in Hans Bloomberg's phrase, is that it recomposes the world as Christians tried to do in antiquity in the face of Gnosticism. Um, so you can live in the world and affirm the world. And this is modernity. So this is the legitimacy of modernity, but I'm not sure I accept that. Um, and then I talk about Jewish thinkers. Um, the amor mundi, the love of the world. So positive and negative. We're not not trying to assert contemptus mundi instead of amor mundi, love, instead of love of the world, hate of the world, but the balance, the tension between them. And how this worked out in Jewish thinking. So in pupils of Heidegger who, who conflicted peoples of Heidegger, people who he taught um, as their doctoral supervisor, who then reject his thinking as kind of Gnostic. So Hans Jonas and, and Hannah Arendt, who is going to entitle her great book, The Human Condition, Amor Mundi, that was the great theme of her work, but also talking about um, Adorno as a kind of secularized contemptus mundi. And then talking about um, the modern age and, trying to retrieve some figures that might be the authority figures for this idea of pendulum swing from being too negative to too positive, or now we affirm the world. So talking about Bonhoeffer and talking about Merton and coming back to Charles Taylor and Dostoevsky and Ivan Elish actually to end, and the great um, virtue that that there in Ivan Elish of utropalia, kind of particular response of playfulness to the world. So you treat, loving and hating the world, the final images of a dance. So in a dance, you, you push away your partner, but you pull them to you as well. And this is, there's a kind of rhythm, a dance um, of playfulness almost, in our attitude to the world as Christians. So that's the image I end with. Hmm. Does that make sense? I, I
1: think that's an excellent and succinct s- s- survey of of what you're drawing um, f- from in, in all of these Christian sources, I, I guess, to to kind of wrestle with the the struggle um, in in play in in your book and and to wrestle with some of the stakes, I thought that maybe the the, the heart, uh, even though this isn't the longest part of your book, or or even necessarily the part you put front and center in the introduction, but your section on Augustine and his critics and and, and also his his understanding of the city of God and the city of man, it you mentioned that many people will look at augustine and especially his his um response to sex and the body and so on and, and see him as overly world hating um and and you, you um you kind of engage with with some of these some of these critics and then you also try to tell us what we can learn from 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 what he's doing in in terms of kind of um describing the the city of God and the city of man. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like it informs the debate that develops across the generations in the West.
2: Yeah. So I suppose I'm an Augustinian. I I did my doctorate, as I've said on Augustine and Augustine's a bit of a minefield on this subject Um, or to change the metaphor, Scylla and Charybdis. So you've got John Milbank reacting against a theologian called Robert Marcus, historian called Robert Marcus. Um, But I go with, um, contemporary teacher, I think a Princeton called Eric Gregory, thinking about the secular. What's what's Augustine's account of the secular, and I think he makes space for the secular. Um, and, and it's important to think what the secularum is. It's a time rather than a space, um, but it's it's not neutral. But it is a space where the church um, has a common life, as in as in Babylon in Jeremiah, with those who don't belong to the church and common goods. Um, common responsibility. And so you can affirm it in a way. The difference is that the world isn't swallowed up by the flesh and the devil, as perhaps for later ascetics in the Middle Ages. Um, and so there's there's something to be commended in, in Augustine's account of the secular. It, it's said by Peter Brown, the great biographer of Augustine, that City of God is a book about being otherworldly in the world, um, not fleeing the world, not rejecting the world, condemning the world. And then, of course, what's the Manichaean heritage? You know, there is a Gnostic heritage. And it's very interesting now that, because usually Augustine scholars read, you know, French, Latin, German, but not the language of Manichaean, you know, Mani. But now that that's accessible. Um, and we can see how he's negotiating um, Mani with Buddhism and with dualism in a different cultural context, as in the West, they're negotiating the classical tradition. And so Augustine then assimilates this and chooses how to what to assimilate and what to reject. So working this out, but I think some of the caricatures about Augustine and his, you know, that he's world-hating, sex-hating—it's a dark view. um, But I don't think that's fair. And the more you read it, I think the more persuasive it is. His question is unde malum: Where does evil come from? Not to flinch and turn away from that question. Um, And you know, if you read the papers and you go back to read augustine the world you can see more you can understand more i think
1: mm.
0: is it uh, to do with uh, can i just jump in is it to do with um augustine's um platonism and the, and the sort of um um sensitivity some people have towards any notion of platonism like platonism necessarily has to be sort of world hating it necessarily yeah. has to be about the sort of escape from the prison house of the body but there's also another side of platonism as well which which comes across in augustine maybe not maybe not everywhere and maybe not so much in in a book like the confessions but there's a se- there's a side of platonism which is about um almost like a kind of um sacramental sense that the world yeah. is sort of yeah. to to the transcendent yeah. you know so it doesn't have to be like that you don't have to read it in that way
2: So exactly, Platonism isn't one thing. There are different Platonists and they have different um, takes. Plotinus is is maybe more negative about the world um, than Plato. But um, Christian Platonism is the basis of what Hans Bersmer calls sacramental ontology, Mm. which I take up in the book as a form of loving the world, how this tradition develops beyond the New Testament. There's a kind of sacramental ontology that when you see the world, you can see the glory of God. It's transparent to the glory of God. And so it's to be loved and it's a way to love God is mm. to love the world. And this is a theme that I take up later in Bonhoeffer because the world is united to God in the incarnation. And so it's sacramental already. It's, it's like an icon mm. and it's, it's um, sacred materiality. And that's, you know, that's a development of Christian Platonism. So it's not mm. to be condemned. I think that's, that's ignorant that that's, you, know, you need to read more and think more. Mm. Um, if you just condemn it all,
1: mm. yeah. I, I I want to follow up on that. It seems like another figure who's central in terms of this question of how do we navigate loving and hating the world, given um, the, the the fallenness of of the world and the flesh, but also the goodness of creation and 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 um, what that looks like in with as as Christians in the West is. Charles Taylor. And yes. in, in my writing, I've looked a little bit at his writing on his chapter on conversion. And, and I think when we first met, we, we talked about this, but
2: no.
1: I, I I know that throughout your argument, you seem to be suggesting that you're following Taylor and you're in line with Taylor in terms of a lot of his conclusions. About conversion and about what it looks like to be a faithful Christian in the secular age or or, or in late modern society, but I think that you might be calling for um, a, a more um, critical take on the world than he is, and a more traditional uh, continuity with with, with um, the Catholic Church than, than he is. So. Uh, just just to bring up a few of the figures he he discusses in this chapter on conversion so so i i write quite a bit on the poetry and theology of t.s Eliot. he thinks that elliot is is far too reactionary and conservative and and critical of the world he he thinks that that um after his conversion you know he he moves way too far in in this sort of um purist direction or or, or, um, what what I might say uh, puts too much emphasis on holiness and and separateness from the world. And and instead, he thinks that in a secular age or or in in late modern society, you need to navigate this uh, more more prudently and and in a way that's more um, capacious, I guess, or generous or or, uh, affirming even. And and so he, he also talks about this in the case of Merton and Maritain, two figures you deal with. And he he is quite critical of their early selves, in in which they're calling for for you come out from amongst them and 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 seek to be holy and be more critical of, of secular society and modern society, and and he says in their later lives that they they learn how to navigate this and they learn how to you know work within the the liberal order and and to um, Embrace individuality and creativity and development in a way that they didn't in their in their early days and and uh, I, I guess I'll mention one more figure and then I'd love to hear your thoughts but uh, Char- Charles Piggy, uh becomes a sort of paradigmatic figure of of um, an exemplar of how Christians should live in in a secular age but Piggy... Never entered into communion with the, the the church after returning to faith, and he he um, also didn't enter into the the sort of discipline of the church. He, he did seem to to go along with certain aspects of, of modernity that more more traditional Christians might have been critical of, such as his kind of passions for nationalism and, and socialism, and so I, I think. You sometimes find in these cr- critics of modernity that, that we're discussing, like Williams and, and, and Millbank and and Taylor, a willingness to go along with certain things that seem in tension with or in contradiction to historic
2: catholicity. What,
1: what are your thoughts on on th- this question of conversion and what is a sort of faithful conversion in a secular age?
2: Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful because actually, these are things I've been thinking about since I wrote it. I think it's these are ideas I came across, I think it's Thomas Powell. He he says that um, Charles Taylor is too, too resigned to the impossibility of any kind of restoration mm. to go back. And
1: I, I follow him in my yeah. writing. So, yeah, so yeah, his thoughts definitely influenced mine, yeah.
2: So, and that made me think, have I been too uncritical as you say about Charles Taylor? Certainly, I think he's extremely helpful. There's no better guide to how he got from, you know, theism as default to atheism as default. And, and so it's difficult to write about that without without reference to him. Um, but is restoration possible? My concern would be, so if I was going to write about this, what I think about was um, would need to be Taylor's idea that, I mean, crudely, how do we get to the secular age? Well, um, it was partly the disciplinary society that Christendom imposed sanctity by force, um, faith by force, like... And so the kind of figure of the grand inquisitor, um, the catacomb, the restraining power, controlling, forcing. And so if you, you know, if you use too much force, you break something. And here we are. We're in that broken world now. And so that would be the next question in terms of, yes, I I see a critique. Um, Then it would have to address this question, um, Taylor's point, because I think he's influenced by Dostoevsky. Um, And I'm fascinated by question at the end of Source of the Self, the dilemma of mutilation. You know, so either you go along the traditional religious route and you you pay for it. You know, there's a cost. Um high ideals have a high cost, um institutional abuse maybe, or personal cost of asceticism. You mutilate yourself in one way or another. But if you if you don't go that road, then you've you know you yourself. You, you don't acknowledge your spiritual need, part of who you are. So what's the way beyond that? And that's where I, where I, yeah, that, that question, I had a chance to actually meet Charles Taylor and ask him about that once, which mm. was fantastic. Um, so valuable and such a kind man. Gave and what did, what did he
1: have to say in response?
2: He thought actually, he, he drew my attention to Emmanuel Mounier, who I hadn't really come across. And now I'd have reservations about, he died quite young. So maybe his thought wasn't developed, but it's, Um, He was, you know, the companion in the the same milieu with Maritain in Paris um, Mm. and with Berdaev as well, looking to personalism. So personalism would be a response to this dilemma of mutilation. But he takes this up, and I put that in the book, about being in the stream of God's love, which affirms us more than we can do ourselves. So I think there's something. um, And the the idea in Maritain of a constellation, not a bastion, but a constellation of stars, and I think the model would be, um, you remember Maritain at the end of his life was a little brother of Jesus. So living contemplation in the world, none like Luther, you know, returning from a monastery but not living a contemplative life and affirming the ordinary life, as Taylor puts it. Um, the model may, might be um, Charles de Foucault living a contemplative life in the world hmm. or rosa Maritain's idea of contemplation on sous le chemin, on the roads. And so there are ideas I think of value. But I think I might be a little bit more critical. Mm-hmm.
0: It but, seems to uh, me that the um, there's a question, and we should talk. We should move on to talk about the, the the final things we've got to talk about in a minute. But there's there's definitely a question to my mind about the sort of philosophical um, underpinnings of of Taylor. I recently reviewed a book that he did. I actually can't remember the name of it. It was five. Um, it was a conversation with a French philosopher called uh, Jonathan Gilbeau, and it's about five five books that have shaped charles taylor i can't actually remember what it's called but it became really clear to me he talks quite a lot about his sort of theological understanding that book which is quite rare he doesn't really do that very much in uh, secular age for example um but but there he he really talks about and he doesn't quite say it like this but it comes across as a sort of um a sense of sort of benign hegelianism like history is he actually says at one point you know we're developing morally i believe mankind is developing morally which is really interesting when you think about it from a Christian perspective, a Roman Catholic perspective as as he has, you know well we're developing morally, but at the same time we've developed away from the Christian faith. So you know there's there's a sort of there's a sort of ambivalence there and I, I'm not sure it really fits with the kind of um Christian Platonism yeah' you're talking about I don't know
2: yeah, I'd share Sula Regan's anxieties about Hegel mm. a kind of synchron of Christianity right yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah. So I don't know I don't know maybe that's maybe that's one of the sort of one of the big differences and, and perhaps one of the you know I agree with you I think he's so good at diagnosing or or telling the story of of how we got to where we are but then there's the same there's this this, this sense with with Taylor that he really is you know, he really is, um, although he talks about losses in modernity, really, he, he sees it in terms of a, he sees it ultimately, I think, in terms of a, as a a development, you know, we're moving, basically speaking in the right direction. There've been some things we've lost, like the sense of transcendence, um, which, you know, I, I would, I would want to make, I would, you know, I've made, I've made quite a lot of capital out of those, um, sections in a secular age, you know, really try to emphasize them and say, you know, this is a really, really big deal what he's talking about here. Mm. But for him, I think it's a, it's like a trade-off, isn't it? It's like, well, we've lost this, but look at what we've gained. You know, yeah. we've gained freedom, yeah. we've gained uh, the, the dignity of the individual and all these opportunities yes. that we didn't have before and so on.
2: Yes. He seems more comfortable with modernity. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps you or I would be. <laughs> and,
1: and, and this, this to, to the extent that, that these figures... Um, are comfortable with modernity or, or believe that we have made serious moral progress. It it seems like they're wanting to focus on affirmation and inclusion and some of these other high ideals of our, of our contemporary society. And and one theme that's come up on this podcast, I don't know how much of of how many of our conversations you've heard, but that father Jamie and I've been kind of wrestling with and trying to understand, it seems like a, a lot of contemporary theology because of, it has this emphasis on affirmation and inclusion and so on, and, and ends up falling into a sort of pantheism or pantheism, universalism, and, and some support of expressive individualism, e- even when people claim to be critical of that, um, it, it still sneaks in the back door. And, and you mention a theologian, and I just ordered a few of his books because his, his arguments that you summarized and introduced seemed so promising. But he seems to take some of the insights of, of the resourcement um, w- without falling into these traps that we seem to be noticing among a lot of co- contemporary theologians. So so can you tell us more about L- Louis Boyer and, and what he brings yeah. to the table and, and if he's able to avoid some of these um, tendencies toward at least what, what Father Jamie and I would see as, as problems with um, overemphasis on love of the world and affirmation of, of modern society that, that could lead to, say, um, pantheism or, or yeah, universalism. Yeah.
2: So the headline would be eschatological humanism mm. as opposed to incarnational humanism. So I suppose affirming Catholicism would be incarnational humanism. Um, Stanley Howes makes a joke about this. He says that, There are certain scripture verses that some denominations should never, they should be banned from using. And Anglicans shouldn't be allowed to talk about, you know, the preface of of John's Gospel. You know, the word became flesh, they would say, and and looked around and say, hey, this isn't so bad. You know, it's a kind of affirmation on our own terms of humanity. It's inclusive, it's universal, it's um, affirming. And eschatological, that's incarnational humanism, but eschatological humanism is about not closing ourselves up in complacent self-affirmation. You know, for, for Bouyer, apart from the cross, creation is doomed to failure. Our lives need the inbreaking of God. They need asceticism. They need the cross to be saved and recovered from sin and fulfilled. Um so you're an affirmation, yes, but but in this needs to be a discontinuity and a judgment upon the world. And so yeah, that that's so I, I put that in the introduction. So this is an exercise in eschatological humanism, this book, which I take from Boyer.
1: Mm.
0: Clinton, we should move on to the to the final section. Um Yes, I,
1: I am so sorry, gentlemen. I actually ha- have to go to an appointment, but but um but please, please, you know, continue okay, the conversation we'll, we'll, and I'll we'll, look forward to listening to it to it later. Yeah,
0: yeah, we'll we'll finish up, Clinton. Okay, um, th- thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, thank you for being yeah. with
2: us. Okay, thank you. Thank God bless. Good to see you, Father. Good to see you. Good to see you.
0: Bye, Clinton. Uh okay, so it's just you and me now. Uh <laughs> Father James. All right. Well, let's we were going to talk about the Benedict option, weren't we? Which is, yeah, which is very, bit. very yeah. interesting. Because I guess the Benedict Option, you know, Roger's book, it's been a very um influential book. It's not a, it's not an academic book. It's a it's a book which um is accessible really across the board and it's had a it's had a, a big impact uh, in a, in the US, but also here to a certain extent in the UK. So um Tell us a little bit about the Benedict option and and some of your your thoughts about it.
2: So I always find that if I mention the the Benedict option, people just dismiss it, Mm. Um, which frustrates me. I mean, the Benedict option is a way for Christians to live in a post-Christian culture. Um, I think Rodrea's assumption is we've already, in a sense, politically lost the culture wars. Um, so we need to concentrate on intensifying and deepening our prayer and our intellectual and spiritual um, life as a church to keep alive the possibility of um, inhabiting a tradition still a living tradition that's nourishing, morally rich. And so Christians need to be more like Orthodox Jews or maybe monks. We need to live at an angle to contem- visibly to contemporary culture. And you know the the gist would be we can't give what we don't have so there's no point emphasizing mission evangelism if you don't also emphasize deepening your life yeah so you've got something to give yeah yeah that's what the benedict option is it doesn't seem so um dismissible you mm-hmm.
1: know
0: yeah yeah and uh it's it's quite it's a really important point isn't it uh, I, as in addition to that you'd say that unless you have clarity as to what your faith actually yeah. is you yes. can't really share it because people are confused and I think that's a serious problem that the Church of England has at the moment vis-a-vis reaching the cultures the culture is not actually sure what the church is trying to
2: give to them yeah I mean that's certainly something I find with ordinands I ask them you know they 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 think you want to hear that they love especially evangelical and say we love the Church of England because of its diversity but then you ask what what are there does that mean you can believe anything you like there's a pamphlet came out at the time of a Lambeth conference um, with a sort of farcical debate between Archdeacon Chasuble and, you know, um uh, you know um various farcical figures about do you have to believe in God to be an Anglican? Um you know what are the boundaries? What's the integrity?
0: Yeah. And then
2: going back to Hooker and talking about laws of ecclesiastical polity is what sets limits to legitimate diversity. Mm. So clarity about that. Yeah. Um yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right that's in interesting. That it's interesting, isn't it? Because that word diversity in that context is ambivalent, really. It could mean it could mean, you know, we like the fact that there are different sort of styles of um worship or traditions as it's sometimes called yes. in the church, but it could also mean um complete incoherence in a from a theological yeah. perspective.
2: And individualism. You yeah. take what you like.
0: Yeah. So um, what what's with the Benedict option, just to go back to that a sec. So what's the problem that people have with it? I mean, I assume um I see the, the problem is really that um people don't like the the fact that it's saying this thing about living at you know living at an orthogonal angle to the yeah. world they don't like that they find that to be too uh too aggressive uh too dismissive yeah. of the world and is that is that what is that what Rome Williams
2: well I at that. Is? so he reviewed the book in the new Statesman. and I think what he was concerned about was he said the anger and anxiety of Roger's tone Right. That settled him, and also the concentration on issues of gender and sexuality. Right, back and he compares the Benedict option actually to you know Jurgen Habermas' characterization of uh Adorno as a strategy of hi- hibernation, right, a strategy of withdrawal, of hope without political action. So that's the, the, the constant um thing that people you know it's heading for the hills mm-hmm. is what people criticize it for, which I don't think is right at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, I've Defended it actually in the book only briefly from Ron Williams, um, in terms of um, an image in Hansel from Balthasar about the heart, the beating of the heart. So you need, um, you know, systole and diastole, I think it is. So you, the beating, so the, the heart contracts to pump blood out, but also relaxes to receive the blood. So the church needs to receive so as to give, and the Benedict option is about making spaces for that to happen. So we deepen our life together. Mm. I think that's not. It doesn't seem to me that's very controversial. Mm. That seems obvious to me, mm. and obviously lacking.
0: Yeah, yeah. It does seem as well to be well. You know, I mean, I think I think what Dreher is saying is that um, that he's emphasising the fact that um, we will be hated by the world for our faith, right? And yes. that's that's it, it, obviously the extent to which that happens will. Um, vary, fluctuate depending on the culture, depending on, on the moment. But it's a pretty clear um, message within the New Testament yes. that this will at least happen to some extent, you know. Yes. Um, if the world hated me, it will hate you also, you know. Yes. So he's, so he's yes. saying those kind of things, which I think as I think the it, people in the Church of England, we don't really like to think like that or accept it maybe partly because of the established na- nature of the church. I don't know, maybe just because of the kind of culture of the church as a sort of nice church with nice people who are, you know, polite and English and everything yeah, yeah. like that. But it seems to me that you have to accept that to some extent, don't you think?
2: Yes, yes. And there have been figures in the church who have uh, reasserted that. I mean, Charles Gore, for example, maybe. Mm. Um, yeah, in, in, you know, confronting Mammon, mm. 19th century. Um but it's not, yeah, it's not emphasised. And mm. Rod does take that up. And it's a, an alternative, the Benedict strategy, to the strategy of marketing or management or accommodation. Mm. Um, here's another option, mm. what we haven't been trying for a long time and mm. um, without much success. Mm. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah. And so is that what you'd say in terms of, um, you know, what, what the... What the Church of England or what Anglican Church is more generally, I suppose, is that what you'd say about how we should learn from Dreyer and the Benedict Option? Of the, is that the main aspect?
2: I think so, yeah. So that, I mean, what they've learned in the Roman Catholic Church is you need resourceable, maybe more than you need a giornamento. Mm. And that this could be an invitation to them and go deeper into our sources mm. and, and think about our formation. Because mm. then maybe you know, we don't have to have programs and manage evangelism. It happens. Mm. Anzo Sanbarthazar's slogan was the greatest possible radiance in the world by the closest possible following of Christ. Mm. That seems a good sort of mission action plan. Yeah, slogan.
0: I think the the problem is is that it seems to be. Um, it seems perhaps in the sort of technocratic age, it, it sort of appears to be too nebulous, doesn't it? You know, you yes. need you yes. need strategy, so, you need targets, you need programs, you know,
2: deliver it. Yeah.
0: yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean bishop Paul Thomas when we had him on a couple of weeks ago yeah it was really I know he's only just been made a bishop but I, you know I can I hope he continues in this way but you know he was he he was saying things very much like this about you know um as as a priest it's your responsibility to be as uh, passionate and committed to your faith as you possibly can and then yes. that will rub off on your congregation and and Yeah yeah. And I said to him do you did you have a plan for when you went to did you did you have a strategy? And he said, "No, not really. That was basically my strategy, you know." And yeah. um, that's the thing, isn't it? Is that we have these, we have all this sort of emphasis on, well, you know, these are the ten things I'm going to do, or whatever. But really, it's it, ultimately there is this one thing that's necessary. Yeah. Yes, without yes, it, exactly. you know, It's nothing.
2: Yeah, to be holy, mm. post holiness. Yeah, in the congregation that you you serve. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Absolutely. Um, Father James, you're coming to the end of our time. Is there anything else that, is there sort of a, a message or a final word that you, you feel it's important to share with our with our listeners at all? Anything that comes to mind?
2: Just um, that I hope if people read the book, they'd find it a spiritual itinerary and they'd work out for themselves the, their own balance between loving and hating the world, between, like Bonhoeffer, the great example, you know, he had a kind of Nietzschean, amor mundi, love of the world, and um, but a kicker, guardian, contemptus mundi and Each of us has to find that balance, mm. work that out for authentic discipleship, mm. and authentic discipleship is essential mm. to evangelism and mission, mm. to yeah. resisting the world, to resisting the end of the Church of England.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the more I think about it, the more I think the Bonhoeffer really is the man for our time in in so many ways, and 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 yeah. certain, certainly in this sense, um, you know, his his love for the world. Is just evident when you read when yes. you read about him his particularly in, in terms of culture and things like that um he and and sociality and conviviality and all yeah. that kind of stuff which was so real but then at the same time even with that love of the world he still had the he still had the discerning eye he said he had the the ability to yeah. tell truth from error falsity from from yes. from veracity evil from good and he was able to he was able to actually live that out with conviction to the end and i agree i think that's exactly what we need
2: yeah witness as well as a theologian yeah
0: yeah Yeah. absolutely well that's a great note to end on um father james thank you so much and just to remind our listeners one other thing i looked up the charles taylor book i i talked about avenues of faith Um, it's a really good book actually Um, five five books that have influenced Charles Taylor and he's in conversation with Jonathan Gilbeau talking about them it's originally in French translated into English as well so um, it's a great book it talks about uh, Dostoevsky Merleau-Ponty I'm trying to remember the other ones Um, one of them was the one of the Vatican II theologians I can't remember who it was and then and then a couple of other people as well Uh, but really really interesting gives you an insight into his theological thinking which I think is quite unique so and of course your book Father James loving and hating the world which is available everywhere isn't it so um you can get it on amazon or if you don't like amazon somewhere else yeah yeah okay all right well father james thanks so much for your time thank you thank you for what you're doing
2: good
0: okay